Hood by J.M. Bullpit. Read by Jack Collard. Chapter 22 Lacuna Waking up the next day was at first a disorientating experience for Robbie. It took him several moments to work out where he was. A cold room with no furniture, an echoing house sliding into slow dereliction, the smash and drawer of waves of a nearby shore. By the time Robbie rubbed the sleep from his eyes, brushed his teeth, and used some water from a bottle to smooth down some of the more wayward elements of his hair, Isla had returned from rummaging around the house. There's almost nothing left in this place, she explained, except for a few books and this pack of cards. The owners took everything when they left, of course they did. But it seems safe and dry. Robbie found he was too busy looking at Isla to be listening to her. If he had mentioned it, Robbie was sure Isla would have said there was nothing extraordinary in her wearing scuffed jeans and a pale, creased shirt, the sleeves of which were rolled up just below her elbows. However, Isla was recalibrating Robbie's notions of beauty, and somehow everything began to look unaccountably attractive on her. Furthermore, she was wearing her hair down and seemed to have just washed it because the tips of the strands were slightly darker and possessed a damp tang of the sea. However, Robbie was most distracted by the fact that her pale shirt was ever so slightly see-through. Even a glimpse of Isla's bra gave him an electrifying jolt that he could not imagine would be any more intense if she was standing naked before him. As Isla leant forward to place their breakfast on a piece of material on the floor, Robbie glimpsed the pale flesh above her bra line and forced his eyes shut for fear that desire might drive him to insanity. A visual echo of the image ghosted onto his inner eyelids like the flare from a glance at the sun. It was not that she looked universally, generically beautiful, 
Like many film or singing stars, it was that Isla had become Robbie's standard of beauty and standard for relationships. No one else would do. For Robbie, Isla had evolved into this agonizing delight, this obsession, an addict's fix he could indulge in every day. Robbie might not yet dare kiss her, but Isla was not going anywhere without him either. And such a thought brought constant joy to him every waking moment. Might have to cash in that last gold bar because we'll need to go shopping for essentials soon. Isla stopped. Are you okay, Rob? Why have you got your eyes closed? No reason, sorry. Uh, is the road busy outside the house? Not at all. Didn't see anyone just now. She replied. Might work on Mildred this morning. She's taken a bit of a battering from the elements recently. Good to have her inside. In that top? Robbie asked. Isla pulled at the material of the shirt, inadvertently enhancing the rounded definition of her breasts for a moment. Good point. No, I'll change it. It's too cold for this gear anyway. It's just nice to wear something that wasn't practical. All too aware that he had not washed properly in days, Robbie veered away from getting too close to Isla in order that she did not catch his odour, which he suspected was somewhat short of alluring. Using her need to change the shirt as an excuse to leave the house, Robbie grabbed his towel and, once he had checked that no one had seen him, headed down to the beach. The last days of November were never going to be a comfortable time to take a dip in the North Sea, so Robbie felt the need to get the experience over with as quickly as possible. Stripping down to his underwear, he waded out into waist-height water, gasping with every step. Placing his soap on the slippery crossbar of a wooden breakwater, Robbie submerged himself in the searing chill of the sea and scrubbed himself clean. Wading back out onto the sand a minute or so later, Robbie grinned through chattering teeth at the woman in the waxy coat with the Jack Russell, who told him he was a few days early. Mad dips in the sea are usually safe for New Year's Day, my dear. Then... With trembling hands, Robbie almost rubbed his skin raw with the towel. It was only as Robbie was putting on his trousers that he noticed Isla was staring down at him from the fragile cliff some thirty feet above. He could not quite make out her expression, but she boldly held his gaze. Robbie had no idea how long she had been spectating, and it seemed pointless to try hide himself from her now. Besides, he was so cold... He just needed to get his clothes on as quickly as possible. When Robbie reached the lip of the cliffs, Isla had gone. A gusting December wind began to hunt down any dampness on his body. Beneath him, the spiky wooden posts of the breakwater gave the impression that the beach was preparing itself against invasion from the threat posed by the massing ranks of clouds on the horizon. How long were you watching me washing? He asked Isla on his return. Probably as long as you were watching me in the barn. She smiled back at him. It's nice to see you when you're not covered in cuts and bruises. Isla went to carry out maintenance on the motorbike in the empty outbuilding a couple of houses further inland, whilst Robbie made a shopping list of all the items they had and all the items they might need. When Isla returned late morning, a rising wind had veiled her face with her own hair. 
Robbie informed her that they needed to buy a camping stove. He'd never particularly enjoyed tea or coffee, but the thought of a hot chocolate and a hot meal whilst reading a decent book and watching the winter weather come in off the sea from an upper window became a dream that was in his grasp. In the darkness before dawn on the following day, the pair pushed the motorbike and sidecar through the village, only starting up the engine to head towards a nearby town when they were a good distance past the last house. It was that hiatus between the celebrations of Christmas and New Year, when the rain of the old year is in its dying gasps, that there is a pause between the expectations for the one ahead. A lacuna, Robbie had once heard his mother call it. People were on the streets of the town, but few were buying anything, biding their time for the New Year sales, and most appeared to be out for a walk for the sole purpose of making inroads into the excessive calories they had consumed a few days before. Clearly, the owner of the outdoor clothing and equipment store was suffering a pause in business at that time, because he could not help Isla and Robbie enough in selling them a camping stove with three spare gas canisters, a set of cooking pots, a wind-up radio, and a couple of battery-powered lanterns. The rest of the day was spent nosing around a second-hand bookshop until they had amassed a healthy selection of reading material and drinking hot chocolate in a small cafe as they waited for twilight and the darkness that would allow them to return to their house on the cliffs unseen. Before leaving the town, Isla and Robbie visited a supermarket to buy enough food and water to last them for three weeks, leaving enough money for one more substantial food shop and a full tank of petrol for Mildred. It took them several attempts to stow all these new stores inside the sidecar. Finally, they decided that Robbie had to sit in the sidecar first whilst Isla packed the provisions around him. Even then, Robbie was forced to hold on to several shopping bags on his lap as they drove off, which made him look as if he had been buried in the shopping. The late December evening had ripened into complete darkness by the time they returned to the village. Isla allowed the bike to coast to a silent stop, and then they were quickly through the still-inhabited part of the settlement with nobody witnessing them. The pair of them had nearly made it back to their house when they almost pushed Mildred over the woman in the deerstalker hat accompanied by the Jack Russell. Switching on a powerful hand torch, the woman shone the light down into the road so as not to blind them. Covert manoeuvres, is it? You two staying in the last house on this road? The woman asked but received no reply from either Isla or Robbie. In the uplight of reflected torchlight, Robbie found it hard to determine the woman's age, but guessed her to be circa sixty years old. No need to raise your hackles or twist your knickers. Makes no odds to me if you're squatting there, I shan't tell. But you might want to consider a move inland. That house you're in is structurally unsound, my dears. My family, I'm Eliza Marsh, by the way, she pointed to the dog, and this is Bertie. My family owned the abandoned bungalow two doors along, this one here. Of course, nobody's been living in it for years, but you're more than welcome to stay. All invited and above board. 
Why would you help us? Isla replied. Oh, my dear, I'm an old spinster with a romantic outlook on life. That's why I sketch and paint. She held up a large art pad tucked beneath her arm. The notion of young forbidden lovers forging their own way in a cold world appeals to some soppy part of this old crone. Catching an occasional glimpse of a handsome young man bathing helps sweeten the deal too, she winked at Robbie. Anyway, I know it's only a bungalow and not nearly as spacious as the house you're in, but it's considerably less precarious and you're welcome to stay. Honestly, it makes no odds to me and no one will bother you. The key to the back door is under the large middle flower pot should you want to crash, as my nephews say. No charge. We'll say goodnight. Come along, Bertie. Isla and Robbie were both rattled by the fact that someone had found them out. However, once they were inside and felt the warmth of the new gas-powered camping stove and heard the comforting bubbling of the cooking food, these were more than enough to dispel any doubts. Anyway, Eliza Marsh did not sound as if she was about to rat on them. Later, Robbie stomped on a few of the floorboards and put his shoulder against a few of the walls, but, in his layperson's opinion, the building did not appear to be structurally unsound, and it was certainly a better-looking prospect than the bungalow she had offered them. Furthermore, they decided to stay put. Their first meal of pasta was a little overindulgent. However, they left not a morsel, and Robbie was glad of the opportunity to cook something for Isla. Sleep came easily to them that night, warmed as they were by the coat, each other, and the cooked food. They read and played cards for most of the following day, in two rusty garden chairs abandoned in a dusty ground-floor back room of the house, their chosen spot being near an upper window that afforded them a glorious view of sea and sky without the chance of being detected by prying eyes from the road. Such a strategy was almost entirely successful, except for the time they hid from view when the artist with the Jack Russell stopped in the road outside the house and used her walking stick to point further inland and then up at the threatening sky. For the time being, Isla and Robbie's lives were no longer about simply surviving, simply existing, and they felt settled. Truth be told, not having access to running water, a toilet or bathroom facilities was something more than an inconvenience, and the house was still finger-numbing cold. Even leaving the camping stove burning for half an hour put no noticeable distance in the chill air. However, they both dressed in multiple layers, and frequent hot chocolates detonated like comfort bombs in their bellies, radiating warmth and something indistinguishable from happiness. Unlike the yachts, they could speak out loud without fear of detection, reading to each other from parts of the books they did not understand or thought were profound or just funny. After a fourth hot chocolate and a take-no-prisoners lunch, they went for a long walk together in the mid-afternoon. It was not until they met Eliza, the spinster artist, and Bertie, the Jack Russell, that they realised it was New Year's Eve. Did you hear? she asked. They've had to cancel the New Year's fireworks because of the storm. There's a storm coming. 
There is indeed. You might want to reconsider my offer. It still stands, you know, she replied. Granted, the Marsh family pal is not as grand as the one you're in at the moment, and is only a bungalow to boot. But storms can be brutes and bitches along this part of the coats, can't they, Bertie? The little dog blinked in the wind, and seemed to mull over an appropriate response. I know I asked it last night, but I have to ask it again. Why would you do this for us? asked Isla. Eliza the artist considered her reply. I don't know your histories, but you two are clearly running away from something. I took you to be brother and sister at first, but I've observed how gentle you are with each other and the way you both steal glances at the other when you think they aren't looking. Ah, your blushes confirm it. I guess you've found each other. But... You are also two young people living a precarious existence in a house in danger of collapse. With no skin off my nose and no strings attached, I can offer you greater sanctuary and I would like to. Besides, you've become subjects in my work, see? I've drawn you two in my last sketch. She pointed to two tiny figures beneath a lowering sky. Shall we call it payment for your modelling work? We're holding hands, Isla said. We never hold hands. Oh, but you have. Yet only once, so far as I can tell, Eliza Marsh declared. Stop all your shy nonsense and hurry up and kiss each other, will you? Otherwise you're calling me a liar in these sketches. Both Isla and Robbie stared after Alila Marsh for an uncomfortably long period of time as the artist trudged away with Bertie. They were too embarrassed to dare look at each other. Isla still glances at me when I'm not looking. A voice within Robbie rejoiced, although his expression was still set in a what-a-weird-woman expression. As they continued their walk, Robbie doubted he had ever been so conscious of how close his right hand was to Isla's left. Isla's fingers were mere inches away from his own, and he was desperate to grab them, but Eliza Marsh had now scuppered any chance of one of them taking the other's hand because it could only signal an invitation to kiss. Robbie was still tempted to try. Kissing could come later as far as he was concerned. Holding hands was just fine for now. Eliza Marsh was right. A serious storm was heading their way. Eliza and Robbie did not continue their walk for long, but were buffeted back home, glad of the protection afforded them by the building and the best seat in the house experience the view from the top window offered them. As the approaching storm barreled in, the last of the light bloomed, sifted and faded. Occasionally, a few milky cones of sunlight penetrated the cloud canopy, spotlighting a portion of a field or a patch of sea for a moment or two before being snuffed out. Not long after, darkness dropped, as if night had forsaken the transitions of sunset and twilight altogether. After an early evening meal of tomato soup with half a loaf of bread, they watched the storm from the window until total darkness erased everything.
Not long after they had settled down for the night, but with Eliza Marsh's words still haunting them, they slept further apart than they had done for days. Sleep was hard to submerge into when the elements were this incensed. It was the sounds of the storm that were most alarming. The chimney growled, boomed and roared like a throaty dragon. Beneath them, something loose slammed, bashed and crashed against the house like an angry, inept burglar attempting to gain entry, and the keening whine of the wind rose and fell like a chorus of the undead. Robbie realised he had managed to snatch some sleep when the house suddenly groaned and shuddered as if it had been mortally wounded. Sounding far too close now, the waves boomed with a low tone that seemed to reverberate inside his bones. Even before he rose to his feet, Robbie could see the glowing lantern judder and jolt across the floorboards as the house shook and convulsed with the beating it was receiving from the storm. Floors of houses were a faithful point of stability, a constant, Robbie's mind was telling him. So why were these trembling sensations telling him otherwise? He was almost at the window when the house quaked and emitted an elongated rumble signalling profound structural distress. Isla was awake too. The alarm in both their eyes mutated into something stronger when the glass in the windows shattered explosively and simultaneously. Then the storm overran the house, immersing them in elemental chaos. It was then that Robbie felt the floor give slightly like the deck of a ship buffeted by a wave. Even with the gale in amongst them, Robbie tried to take a cautious step back towards Isla, but the house buckled beneath him. With an astonishingly graceful motion, the bricks, timbers and mortar on one side of the house fell away as one into a screaming darkness flecked with surf. And Robbie was falling too. Arms flailing, his fingers found floorboards and gouged out trenches in the surface until catching on a raised, nail-spiked piece of wood. With his arm as an anchor, the rest of his body pivoted into the splintered remains of the fragmented half-floor. A micro-moment before he experienced the pain, Robbie knew his torso would feel the full weight of his body countering gravity. However, instead of paralysing agony, his body filed the impact under severe ache, survival being its priority for the moment. One hand gripping the pine floorboard, Robbie could feel his legs dangling in empty space below him, finding no resistance but the gusty wind. One hand and a single loosened floorboard was all that was holding Robbie from the mangled corpse of the building some thirty feet below him. In a single glance, Robbie knew that although he might survive the fall with broken legs, almost certainly the tumbling wreckage from the rest of the teetering house would crush him. The fingers of his other hand desperately sought a hold on the floor. Suddenly, two hands were guiding his own to the rough edge of a second floorboard and then they gripped his as if they dare not let go. No, go back, it's too dangerous. He yelled at the wide-eyed girl in front of him, but Isla's stubborn, hurt expression seemed to suggest that theirs was to be a shared fate. Beneath them, the house still shuddered under the relentless barrage of the waves. 
Another room caved in and was gutted with terrifying ease. And now, the remainder of the hollowed-out house began to tilt, cracks fracturing the walls. The two of them watched the camping stove and a lantern skitter past them into the pit below. Penduluming his legs from side to side, Robbie eventually managed to wedge a foot against a torn timber and hauled himself back onto the upper floor. As he took a second to gather his breath, Isla began to throw the remains of their gear into one sleeping bag, which she dangled then dropped through the gaping landward-facing window frame. Robbie could tell he was bleeding, but for the moment, it was an irritation he had no time to dwell on. The stairs were gone, and the house was still listing like a scuppered ship. Isla was already on the lip of the window ledge and had placed her legs into the sleeping bag. Stupidly, Robbie thought she looked as if she was about to ride a helter-skelter at first, before his mind processed what she intended to do. Clambering up beside her, he wedged his legs into the sleeping bag beside her own and they pushed off. Even though the material of the sleeping bag took the worst of the grating surface of the sloping wall, they still felt every crack in the render and the slant of the house was still steep enough that they landed on the earth below with a knee-buckling, teeth-jarring thud. The storm was relentless and seemed furious to have lost a sacrifice, hounding them all the way to the Marsh family bungalow. If he had been asked, Robbie would have said that he was feeling calm and rational, but his legs refused to obey him and he lurched from side to side like a drunk turning out late from the bog digger's arms. Grabbing Robbie's hand to steady him, Isla noticed the blood from his wound, but did not let go of him. They reached the back door of the bungalow two doors further down and further inland with the pair of wet sleeping bags. Robbie leant against the doorframe as Isla hunted for the key beneath the large middle flower pot, and then the two of them stumbled through the kitchen and practically fell into the living room of their new accommodation. It took several minutes before either of them moved, but soon Isla was up and lighting the one remaining lantern she had managed to salvage whilst Robbie leant against a wall and dripped blood diluted with rainwater onto the Marsh family home. Shock and delayed pain came in waves and Robbie began to shake. Isla was soon knelt beside him, shredding the ruined sleeping bag in which they had slid down the side of the demolished house to towel some of the water from off his face and then to wash and bandage his damaged hand. Are you hurt elsewhere? she asked. Robbie nodded and gestured to the side of the torso that had taken the full impact when he had swung into the ruptured floor. Then Isla was undressing him and he was meekly directing her how to remove his shirt whilst causing him the least possible pain. Robbie's shirt seemed to have soaked up a good deal of blood from the body wound, but even though Isla was gentle in washing the injury with fresh rainwater, he winced with each dab of the rag. Finally, she seemed satisfied with her efforts and held a strip of material against his side, waiting for the bleeding to stop. The contact was soothing. For many minutes, Robbie closed his eyelids and imagined healing warmth seeping out of Isla's hand 
and into his body. Tiny, insubstantial sensations that made no sense began to flutter across his chest, causing Robbie to open his eyes. Barely a foot from his face, Isla was staring down raptly at his bare torso, tracing the divide of Robbie's chest and up onto the gently rising mounds of muscle on either side, caressing his collarbones and across his throat. Then a lingering finger ghosted down to the shallow indentations of his uninjured ribs and over to his abdominals before orbiting his belly button. Robbie could scarcely control the deeper rise and fall of his chest. Something similar to the ache of his wounds surged within him. The hand that was not pressing the tattered rag of the sleeping bag against his wound stopped its meanderings and pushed her own hair out of her eyes. Strand still clung to Isla's face, but she guided them away and blinked out the water droplets caught in her eyelashes. And then her hand was on his face and into his hair, and shivering and drenched and dishevelled, they seemed to truly observe each other for the first time. My beautiful boy, she uttered in a tone just a notch above a whisper. The kiss was tentative at first, as if she feared to hurt him, and Robbie merely equalled whatever she initiated. But soon, some hunger overtook Isla, and the kissing spilled beyond affection into something not dissimilar to aggression. Something contained and feral was suddenly releasing within them both, and he was undressing her, and Isla was helping him, guiding him, and they were freeing themselves from the clothing until they were both naked in the dim glow of the lantern. Are you sure that this is what you... Before Robbie could finish his question, Isla sealed his lips with a kiss, adding after a few moments, but thank you for asking. Any aches Robbie felt mingled and blended with these new sensations, until pain and pleasure seemed two different vital elements within this one momentous experience. Thank you.